Come on, put your hands together. We came to celebrate the name of the Lord, that powerful name, the name that's able to protect us, the name that's able to lift us and shield us from our enemies. Anybody want to celebrate that awesome name with me? The writer said, the Lord is my strength. He is my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's my God, and he is my rock. So let's lift our voices together and Strong Tower, family and friends. Welcome to our 10.30 a.m. Sunday morning service. In just a few moments, our very own pastor, Dr. Chris Williamson, will be bringing a timely word. If you have prayer requests or would like to give online, be sure to log on to our website or app at www.strongtowerbiblechurch.com. Good morning, Strong Tower. It's so good to be with you on this beautiful October morning. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as we go to his word. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to open up your word, to have you speak to us, to have you encourage us, to have you challenge us and even comfort us and yes, instruct us. So, Father, because your son is the teacher and we are his pupils, his disciples, we sit in anticipation of what he is going to teach us today through the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, change our minds, transform our minds, touch our hearts, and then, Lord, put activity in our hands and movement in our feet. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And whatever's accomplished today in and through and from this message, we're going to give you the praise for we ask it all in Jesus name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. As we find ourselves in our series called Sovereignty 2020, I thought I would address a subject that is very pertinent to the topic of politics and this season of voting. And I would like to talk today about the issue of life, uh, the issue of abortion. Now, when it comes time to preach a passage or a sermon rather on abortion, it's rather challenging to do because the Bible does not specifically mention the word abortion. And so therefore we have to gather uh, from the whole counsel of God an ethic or a systematic theology on life, life in the womb. But as you're going to find out from me today, your pastor, that yes, I'm going to talk about preserving and protecting life in the womb, but I'm also going to talk about what the Bible talks about uh, as a whole, and that is preserving, protecting, and supporting life out of the womb, because that is technically a biblical worldview. So today, I would like to preach a message entitled, It's Not Either Or, It's Both And. It's Not Either Or, It's Both And. And in order for me to preach this message, I'm going to have to be um, not only a biblical instructor this morning, 
but I'm also going to have to be a history teacher this morning. So if you will bear with me, I'm going to not only share the Bible, but I'm going to have to use a lion's share of my time giving us a preview of history. Um, we have to understand where we have come from uh, because that helps determine why we do what we do today, why we think the way we think, and why there are certain philosophical, political perspectives that have inundated the body of Christ uh, the way in which it has. And so I've got to take us back in order to know where we are so that we might better go forward together as the body of Christ. And so let me begin by saying it should be hard for a Christian to be a one party voter or a one party loyalist because neither party, Democrat or Republican, neither party fully represents the interests of the kingdom of God, neither party. And even though both parties fall short, both parties have things within their platforms that are consistent with biblical values. This is why it should also be hard or challenging or difficult for a Christian to be a one issue voter because the Bible addresses a multitude of issues that are pertinent to the full cycle of life from the womb to the tomb and everything in between. So let me say those things again. I, I believe it is difficult to be a one-party loyalist or a one-issue voter because both parties are flawed. Both parties have things about their platforms that are consistent with biblical values. And when we come to the Bible, there are a multitude of issues that touch the heart of God and that ought to strike and touch the hearts of his children. But as we learned last week, everyone doesn't have to be burdened by the same issue, the same matter in order to be in the body of Christ or to serve the Lord uh, in, in a sufficient manner. God gives people different burdens, different giftings, different uh, um, experiences and on and on. Um, and so we have to learn how to work together as opposed to working separately. You see, politics makes Christians choose between protecting life inside of the womb or supporting life outside of the womb. I said politics makes Christians choose one or the other. Politics will make a Christian choose whether you are going to protect life inside of the womb or support life outside of the womb. But I'm here to let you know today in the name of Jesus Christ and by the authority of the whole counsel of the word of God, that God chooses both. That God is for life in the womb and God is for life outside of the womb. So I stop by here today to let you know that it's not either or, it is both and. It is not either you stand on this side of the life issue or that side of the life issue according to God and Holy Writ. Christians are to be on both sides of the life issue. So when we consider the predominantly white evangelical voting bloc, that has existed 
for approximately 41 years, abortion has become the main issue that drives that platform. Abortion has become the main issue that drives the evangelical platform. Now, I say has become because there was a time when it was not always that way. Abortion did not always drive the political platform of what we call evangelicals today. You see, in 1954, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled nine to zero that separating children in public schools on the basis of race was unconstitutional in the landmark case of Brown versus the Board of Education. This ruling brought about the end of legalized segregation by overruling the separate but equal laws of Plessy versus Ferguson from 1896. The ruling to desegregate public schools led to the birth of private and segregated Christian schools. Did you hear what I just said? The uprising or the birth of private Christian schools came about because the Supreme Court struck down segregation and now legalized and encouraged integration in public schools. But because some of those people didn't want to go to school with my people, those good Christian people decided to start private schools or private Christian schools so that they wouldn't have to go to school with us. Isn't that sad? You see, the words segregated and Christian are not supposed to go together no matter what your grandfather says. But when racism drives your faith, this is what we get. You see, the IRS started sending letters to church-run, racially segregated schools, inquiring about their racially discriminatory policies. One Christian fundamentalist college in Greenville, South Carolina, in particular, named Bob Jones University, rejected the letter from the IRS. You see, the school told the IRS that it did not admit African-Americans because racial segregation was mandated in the Bible. So when the IRS says, and even the government says, you cannot be a, a racially segregated school and, and receive tax-exempt status if you practice racial segregation. And these leaders of that school, Bob Jones Jr. in particular, said that the reason why they practice racial segregation in their schools, i.e. even in their churches, is because they believe that segregation was mandated by the word of God. Therefore, they felt that the government could not impose itself in religiously based decisions. So schools like Bob Jones University felt that since their schools did not accept federal money, the government had no right to tell them how to run their schools. These schools may have not accepted government funding, 
but they did not pay federal taxes either. So the government would not let them have it both ways. The government decided that racially discriminatory schools were not considered to be charitable educational institutions, so therefore, these so-called Christian schools would have no claims to tax-exempt status and benefits, which means that if someone were to give a large donation to a Christian school at that time, the IRS is saying you will not get a tax deduction for that donation because the school would be stripped of its tax-exempt status. So after years of warnings to integrate or pay taxes, the IRS finally stripped Bob Jones University of its tax-exempt status. And this infuriated several segregated Christian schools across the South. And around this time, the late Reverend Jerry Falwell entered the national discussion on this matter. Like Bob Jones, Jerry Falwell believed in racial segregation. But unlike Bob Jones, Falwell decided to shift the grounds of the debate with the IRS. Falwell framed his opposition to the government in terms of religious freedom and not in the defense of racial segregation. Not only that, since the term fundamentalist was directly associated with Christians who practice racial segregation, the term evangelical became the palatable new expression to identify this group of civilized religious races. This group, also known as the religious right or the moral majority, decided to find an issue that could motivate conservative Christians to form a powerful voting block. So would it be gathering the church around the sin of uh, um, uh, pornography, to say no to pornography? Would that be what would bring this group of conservatives together? No, that wouldn't be strong enough. Uh, would it be uh, uh, saying no to drugs or, or, or getting tough on crime? No, that wouldn't be the main driving force for this particular group of people. And they decided that it would be abortion that would bring this group of Christians together. You see, by the late 1970s, many Americans were beginning to feel uneasy about the rise of legal abortions handed down by the case of Roe versus Wade in 1973. And we know that Roe v. Wade is what legalized abortion in America from a federal perspective and a federal decision. Um, and so, and up until that time, uh, Protestants did not take on the abortion issue. They believed it was a Catholic church issue. As a matter of fact, in 1971, delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution encouraging Southern Baptists to work for legislation that allowed for the possibility of abortion under certain exceptions. And so the, the Southern Baptist Church wasn't trying to do away with abortion altogether back in 1971. They said 
since abortions are happening on a local level, it hadn't gone to the federal level yet, they said, well, let's at least uh, uh, say that if there are to be abortions, might there be exceptions uh, to the rule? And that is no abortion unless a woman was raped. No abortion unless there was incest. No abortion unless uh, there was a threat to the mother's life. No abortion unless there was uh, um, an understanding of significant fetal abnormality. And so they introduced these exceptions to abortion that allowed for possibilities for abortion. And so around 1979, Reverend Jerry Falwell did three things of political significance. Number one, he blamed Democratic President Jimmy Carter for the IRS's interference to demand the desegregation of Christian schools and universities or else they would be taxed. So Falwell turned his ire and the church's ire, the conservative church's ire against Democrat, who was also a Christian, Jimmy Carter. But we have to keep in mind parenthetically that this policy enacted by the IRS to hold segregated Christian schools accountable to change or else, to change and integrate or lose their uh, tax exempt status, this policy was enacted under a Republican president uh, uh, also known as Richard Nixon. Second thing that Falwell did is that he determined that abortion would become the linchpin issue for conservatives, even though it came into law under a Republican president, Richard Nixon. So Richard Nixon, a, a Republican, uh, abortion came into play on his watch and not on the watch of a liberal. Thirdly, Falwell determined to elect a conservative to the presidency so as to deny Jimmy Carter a second term. And so Falwell, he galvanized Christians in the South uh, in order to uh, make a run at the presidency. So therefore, now we have Ronald Reagan. Enter Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan ran against Jimmy Carter on a staunch anti-abortion platform in 1980. But somehow the evangelicals forgot that in 1967, Ronald Reagan signed into law one of the most liberal abortion bills in the country while serving as the governor of California. But for some reason, conservatives seem to have selective amnesia. And so they have selective amnesia. Uh, they, they don't always remember the past. And, and they don't like when people like me call out the past and prove that the past has bearings on the present. Uh, so, so you may have selective amnesia, but I don't. The conservatives picked up being against abortion. Listen to this. Seven years after Roe versus Wade legalized abortion. And so when Jerry Falwell gathered and galvanized this voting block and they chose abortion as its linchpin issue, this occurred seven years 
after Roe v. Wade uh, became legal in 1973. So the conservatives originally formed to resist government interference into their racially segregated schools. But they later used abortion, used abortion, used abortion as their rallying point and cover up to acquire and maintain political power. Mm, mm, mm. They used abortion to acquire and to maintain political power. When Reagan won the election in 1980, it was seen as a victory brought about by the religious right or the moral majority. Randall Balmer of Politico magazine recently wrote, and I quote, although abortion had emerged as a rallying cry by 1980, the real roots of the religious right lie not in the defense of a fetus, but in the defense of racial segregation. Did you hear that? I hope I just even gave you a thumbnail history to prove that, that it didn't start because, or the, or the, the evangelical base didn't start because of abortion. They got together first because they were upset that the IRS came against them because they were practicing segregation and still ex expecting to receive tax exempt status. And so they got upset when the IRS held them accountable. And so in order to, 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 to tell the truth today, we've got to go back to the past and the truth of yesterday. And so this explains to me why in most conservative evangelicals of today, when they start talking about the right to life and being pro-life, based on their racist past, it explains to me that today they don't have any concerns about racial justice as they quote unquote fight for life. I said it too fast, let me say it again. Uh, uh, today's pro-life ethic does not include racial justice because the evangelical base did not start for racial equality or racial justice in the beginning. It had nothing to do with that. It opposed racial justice. It opposed racial inclusion and integration. And so therefore, it's no surprise that today, evangelicals can say that they, are, they care about the baby in the womb, but they care very little about the black child outside of the womb. So, so what we do today is a result of what we're, we were born out of. And some of us need to be born into a different family or something. Now that we're getting some truth uh, 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 given to us. And in 1986, your pastor started attending Liberty University under Reverend Jerry Falwell. 1986, I started going to this Christian college and during my freshman orientation class in 1986 I was told that interracial dating was not supported by scripture because God told the Jews not to intermarry with the Canaanites so when I'm on campus as a freshman I am a minority in the minority uh, the majority happens to be white folks. They're in the majority and they're laying down these rules, these laws to discourage 
interracial dating because that could lead to interracial marriage. Uh, Liberty was not as forthright in those days as Bob Jones University was. Uh, in Bob Jones University, the only African-Americans that they decided to begin admitting under federal pressure were married African-Americans because the hope was if you come in married, you're not going to mess with the little white girls, black men. <laughs> so at Liberty, they weren't as bold in their racism as Bob Jones, but they were subtle uh, even still in their racism at Liberty. And they used the Bible, or should I say misused the Bible, to discourage interracial dating by saying the Jews were told by God to not intermarry with the Canaanites. And if you've been doing any kind of inductive Bible study for any amount of time, you know that that is a bogus and biased and blind interpretation of the book. Because when God told the Jews not to intermarry with the Canaanites, that wasn't a racial decision. That was a religious decision because the Jews worshiped the one true God, Yahweh, whereas the Canaanites and all the other Jebusites and all of them, they worshiped many gods. They were polytheists. And so God was saying, don't intermingle with them. Don't marry with them because they will lead your heart astray. However, if they convert to Judaism, if they proselytize to Judaism, then it's fair game for a believing Jew to marry a believing Gentile. And we see the same thing reinforced in the New Testament, where Paul says that when you marry someone, the only criteria is that they are in the Lord, not that they are of your race or ethnic group. And so I was that person, even as a freshman, who would raise my hand when they would say that stuff and say that uh, we, we highly discourage interracial dating and marriage because of what the Bible says. I'd raise my hand and say, well, what about Moses marrying an Ethiopian slash African woman named Zipporah? What about Moses? And they would look past me and say, uh, next, who else has a question? They didn't want to answer that question. They couldn't answer that question. Or in their uh, uh, ethic of theology, Moses and Zipporah and Jesus and everybody in the Bible was white. So it didn't matter that I talked about Moses having a Cushite wife, an Ethiopian wife, because in their mind, everybody was white in the Bible that did something positive. But, but, but the people that did stuff negative, oh, yeah, they're, they're black. They're cursed with blackness. But that's where the Lord had me go to school. And there were some good things that came out of that anyway. So they taught me that in the orientation class, or at least they tried to teach me that. But I didn't accept it then, and I surely don't accept it now. And then another thing they taught me in the orientation class at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University is that abortion was wrong, except for instances of rape, incest, threat to a mother's life, or severe deformity of the child. And so once again, you, you're not going to find those exceptions in the Bible any more than you're going to find the word abortion in the Bible. But they did what Paul advised against in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, do not go beyond what is written. Well, they went beyond what is written because they had to reinforce a political platform. 
Again, yes, God cares about life in the womb. And yes, God is against abortion, but he's so much more than that, which is what we're going to see when we open up the scriptures here. And in that class, as they were teaching me about uh, 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 not having abortion and being against abortion, they took me and all the other students to the passage I want you to go to this morning. And that's Jeremiah chapter one, verse five. Jeremiah chapter one, verse five reads as follows. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So this verse here was used as a verse to speak about life being in the womb, life uh, happening at conception. And I agree with that. Because in this verse, three things jump out. First thing is God says, I formed you, Jeremiah. I formed you. And this coincides with Psalm 139 when God talks about how he has knit us together in our mother's wombs. So, so you see something precious, something delicate about each life, each person being made in the image of God. And in the womb is life. In the womb, John the Baptist jumped when Mary walked in just a few weeks pregnant with Jesus in her womb. So there's life in the womb. So God says, I formed you. Secondly, God says, I knew you. I knew you before you were a you. I knew you before I formed you. I knew you before you knew yourself. So this speaks to the sovereignty of God that he knows each and every one of us by name before our parents even give us a name. This is our God and who, according to Acts chapter 17, determines the times and the boundaries of where we would be born, what era, what season, what place, what nation we would be born. So he is the most high God who gives intricate attention and detail to each individual life that he creates and knits in the womb. So we see that God says, I formed you and I knew you. But then thirdly, God says, I ordained you. I have a work for you, Jeremiah. You are going to grow up. You are going to grow up. You are going to grow up and be a prophet to the nations. I've ordained you to be a prophet. I laid my hands on you in eternity past. And before anyone laid hands on you in the present or anointed you with oil, I said that your purpose in life was to be a prophet, a mouthpiece for me to the nations. So that's what they taught me at Liberty. But as they taught me Jeremiah 1 5, they pretty much remained only on the first two points of Jeremiah chapter one, verse five. And that is that God forms us in the womb and that God knows us in the womb. They focus pretty much exclusively on that. And they didn't give too much attention to the fact that God has a plan for us outside of the womb. So as we take care to protect life in the womb, we also ought to take care to support life outside of the womb so that individuals can live to their full God-given potential in order to bring God glory in the earth. So a Christian life ethic is not just a focus on the womb, but it also includes a focus on life outside of the womb. It's not either or, it is both and. 
That's what the Bible teaches. And when we consider the life of Moses, we see this. So now go over to Exodus chapter 2 as I close. We see this ethic, this whole life ethic in the life of Moses. Life begins in the womb and we should uh, work as hard as we can to make sure that life is not terminated in the womb. But we also realize that life goes all the way to the tomb and God cares about life from the womb to the tomb and everything in between. And we see this with Moses. We know, according to uh, the story, that the Jews had been in Egypt for 400 years in bondage. And at the time of the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh that arises in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel had been multiplying at a very steady rate to the point where the Egyptians felt that they would be outnumbered by the Jews. So therefore, they had to uh, oversee the births of the Jewish women, and they decided to kill the Jewish boys in order to slow down the, the, the population of the Hebrews. So they had uh, um, their women, the Egyptian women who served as midwives at the Egyptian hospital where the birthing stools were, that when the Hebrew women gave birth, and if it was a boy, they were supposed to throw the boy into the Nile River, killing the boy, and if it was a girl, they were to let the girls live. So they were trying to exterminate the, the Jews by killing the boys. So although it wasn't death in the womb, it was death immediately out of the womb, and they were uh, focusing on boys. So enter Jochebed. Jochebed is Moses' mother. She is a slave. She and her husband, Amram, they're born into slavery. Um, they get pregnant with their third child. They had Miriam, they had Aaron, and then they had baby Moses. And because uh, uh, Jochebed had an internal conviction to support life, life in her womb, she decided to not go to the birthing stools at the Egyptian hospital. She didn't know whether she was having a boy or a girl, but she knew I'm not taking my, my life and my child down to that quote unquote clinic or hospital. And so she hid her pregnancy. And then when she gave birth to Moses, she hid Moses for three months. So, so let, me, let me read the passage for you so you can see where I'm going today. Exodus chapter two, verse one. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and she bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. So she's hiding this baby boy for three months. That is, she has just given birth to. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it or dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. So what we see here is Jochebed, she fought to protect the life of her child in her womb by not going to the hospital where the possibility of 50-50 chance of her leaving home without a, a child 
If she had a son, she wasn't going home with her son or back to her slave quarters. If she had a girl, she could go home with the girl, but if she had a son, they were gonna kill her son. So she said, I'm not going there. I will keep my pregnancy private. I will keep my delivery private and I will keep this boy private as long as I could. And she did it for as long as she could for three months. So she is to be commended because she protected and preserved life in the womb. But there were some Jews, obviously, in the land who did not have the same conviction of heart that Jochebed and Amram had, whereby they went to that place. They went to that hospital, and if they had a boy, they surrendered their boy to the state, and the state killed their son. So there were some Jews doing that. Now, we thank God for the Egyptian uh, uh, midwives because they had a fear of God in them as well where they said, we're not going to kill the boys. And so they lied to Pharaoh by saying that the Hebrew women give birth quicker than Egyptian women. And when Hebrew women give birth on the birthing stools, they get their kid and already grab their kid before the midwives can come take the kid and examine to see if it's a boy or a girl, and then either hand the girl to the mother or put the boy in the Nile. But they said the Hebrew women give birth quickly. So they lied and God blessed them for a lie. And, they, and, and God remembered them, the Bible said, and they ended up getting houses and things like that. Why? Because God supports those who protect life. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. It's not either or, it's both and. It doesn't end there because just as Jochebed, she protected the life of Moses in her womb, Miriam comes along, Moses' older sister, and she supports his life outside of the womb. I wish I had a witness today. I wish I had people who are willing to let the Bible speak as opposed to politicians speak or political preachers speak. Here's what the Bible says. So this young man has been born, verse 4, and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her or said to Jochebed, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him and the child grew and the child grew and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses be saying because I drew him out of the water. Oh, there's so much good stuff in here. So as I mentioned, Jochebed protected the life of Moses while in her womb. And now Miriam, his sister, is going to support his life out of the womb to make sure that he grows up and has access to life and opportunities. Why? Because the calling on Moses was just not to be known in the womb, but the calling of Moses was to be a difference maker outside of the womb. So he needed protection and support in the womb and out of the womb. And what Miriam did, 
She, she had a lot of ingenuity. She was very clever. So she watches where the ark goes. And because she works for Pharaoh's daughter, she's a slave. She uses her influence. She uses her access. She uses her privilege to speak up for the life of this strange baby that she doesn't say that's my brother. So she's being as wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. And she says, should I go find a nurse from the Hebrew women, since you like this child, to, to nurse this child. Pharaoh's daughter says, go do that. And so Miriam goes and gets Moses and her mother to nurse the son that she just gave up, but God gave back. And then Pharaoh's daughter says, I'm going to pay you to nurse this child that I don't know is your son, but I'm going to pay you to do your job to nurse this child who's your son. Only God can do that, everybody. Only God can do that. But what we see in Miriam is a person who says, I care about life outside of the womb, because if this kid doesn't have access to health care, if this kid doesn't have access to a home, if this kid doesn't have access to education, if this kid doesn't have access to a future, that kid may one day get to a point of, I survived the womb, but because of the poor quality of my life, I wish I had died in the womb. No, no, Moses didn't say that. But Job said that in Job chapter 3. When the quality of his life had drastically changed, he lost his children, he lost his money, he lost his businesses, he lost his health. And Job said, I wish I had died. I wish I died in the womb rather than live and go through this misery. So therefore, as Christians, we are to love our neighbors and support them so that people can live the best quality life as possible. But if we only fight for life in the womb and we don't care about life outside of the womb, we have missed it as far as having a biblical ethic. And so it took Miriam and it took Jochebed to take Moses from out of the womb and even out of the Nile River. So Christians, in conclusion, today's evangelical voting block and its philosophy were originally formed to protect the religious freedom of racists to keep their Christian schools segregated. Then six to seven years after Roe versus Wade, they chose to adopt adoption as their rallying point to galvanize voters in order to acquire and maintain political power which is why for the past 41 years, abortion has been the carrot that politicians dangle in front of evangelical Christians that they may vote for and the politicians will take their vote and do nothing with it. Just as much as many Democrats will take the black vote and do nothing with it either. But if Christians stand in the middle between right and left, de Democrat and Republican, we can hold both sides accountable to the promises they make when they're trying to get our vote, whether we're black, white, whether we're Protestant or evangelical. My goodness. So that's what we saw today. But we also saw that the Bible doesn't take sides on the life issue. A biblical ethic, a biblical worldview is not womb or tomb. It is womb and tomb. It is both and.
So Christian voter, if you choose to take a side, that is your prerogative. You are free in Christ to take a side because you may be burdened by something, one of the sides, because of a personal experience or a family experience, whatever. Okay, you have that freedom. What I am imploring you to do is to not take one side and put down people on the other side. That's whether you're red or blue, Democrat or Republican. Because what happens is politics has divided the body of Christ because politics has divided the life question, the life issue. But as we go back to the Bible, it ought to challenge us as we go back to the polls. And again, if you're passionate about life in or out of the womb, be passionate, but don't put down people who make it their burden to fight for life on this side or that side, as long as they have a whole life ethic and realize that one person can't do it all. Let, let, me, let me close with this illustration. When I grew up playing football, first in the Little League and then going into high school, it was common for people who were gifted athletes to play on both sides of the ball. So when I was growing up, I played defense and offense, Little League and even into high school. But when I went to college, it was concentrated on one position, but I didn't play long because I broke my leg and God called me to preach. Um, but, but here's the point. When, when you're younger, you can play on both sides. You can play multiple positions. You can play quarterback and safety in high school. All right. But when you get to college and the pros, they don't do that back and forth stuff of two sides of the ball. You play on one side, even though you may be really gifted. They realize that the game becomes more intense on a college and especially on a pro level. So therefore, you need to focus your attention on one position as opposed to when you were coming up, you played two positions. And when we think about the life issue in the womb and out of the womb, it's hard for all of us to play both sides of that situation. Some of us are going to play on one side because it's so intense and it requires so much time and thought and prayer. And if that is what God has called you to do, so be it. But don't put down people who are on the other side. Let me go a little bit deeper with this. Coach Sherm or Elder Sherm and, and Bernard Pollitt would say that, yes, gifted athletes, although they can play two sides of the ball, they play one side of the ball, either offense or defense. And so they practice together, offense and defense, during the week to get ready for a game. And sometimes it can get so heated between offensive players and defensive players that they start fighting in practice. They start fighting in practice. That's when the coach has to step in and separate them to say, hey, fellas, hey, 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 we are on the same team. We want the same thing. We wear the same uniform. We represent the same city. Stop fighting with each other in practice. And so what happens, they stop fighting. And then when game time comes, they realize that they're one team. And even though these guys play on different sides of the ball, they're rooting for each other. Why? Because the goal is for the team to win. So they squash their differences that they had in practice. They realize they're one team going against the same opponent on Sunday. 
And what you see on Sunday is you don't see offense and defense fighting with each other on the same team. You see them fighting against the other team. I'm saying all that to say this. You may be on team Jochebed, and Jochebed is fighting to protect life in the womb. Or you may be on the side of the ball with Miriam, and Miriam is fighting to support life out of the womb. But here's the point. Jochebed and Miriam were both on team Moses. They were both on team life. They were both on Kingdom teams on the on the on the team of the kingdom. They both were on God's team. So we've got to stop dividing on God's team and recognize that we're on the same team, even though we may play on different sides of the one issue of life. Oh, I wish Christians would get this in their minds and be transformed, that we would get a biblical ethic, a biblical worldview, and we would support and cheer for one another and stop being as divided as the politicians are in Washington who keep playing us to get our votes and doing nothing with those votes in order to change lives in the womb or out of the womb. The church must rise up and take our position of being salt and of being light. Oh, I pray that we would see a new day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear what you're saying to the church. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Strong Tower Bible Church, I want to quote the late Tupac Shakur. Tupac Shakur talked about a rose growing through concrete. In other words, something beautiful can come out of something bland. Something unexpected can come out of something that is everyday and something that is mundane. Uh, life can come out of death. Concrete, a rose, life can come. And that's how God works. Um, he's able to make Aaron's rod bud and have life to a dead object, but it's able to spring forth and have life. That's what God does. And in the midst of a hard season, 2020, with this pandemic, it's been challenging on all of us yet and still. God has broken through with many glimmers of grace, goodness, light, and love. And we need to choose to see those things, say those things, testify of them and rejoice of how he's working. And one way in which he has been working in our church during a pandemic is he's been growing our church. And so today we get to welcome during a pandemic several new members into Strong Tower Bible Church, a group of people who came to a virtual class and a group of people who met with elders virtually for their interview, and now they are about to receive a virtual right hand of fellowship, officially welcoming them into the body of Strong Tower Bible Church. Man, God is, again, he's doing great things in the midst of a pandemic, growing the church through a pandemic. So I hope you will receive the newest members, and they are Scott Mirahead, Rosemary Mirahead, his wife, Carla Winston, Rebecca Davis, Shanita Michael, Mary Alice Stovall, Todd Hancock, and Zane Strickler. Look at what God is doing. Well, Strong Tower, what an awesome time we've had today of worshiping God, learning 
uh, biblical history, even American history, recognizing that all of this is his story, that God is working in and through it all because he's sovereign and he's providential. And so he's in control no matter what. And we should have our hearts be at rest because of that. Isaiah chapter 26, verse three says that God is able to keep you in perfect peace when your mind is focused on him. So may we focus on him during these during these days of the election where it's tumultuous, where it's it's unpredictable. May our eyes be on the Lord and may our ears be on him. But before we receive the benediction, I want to thank God for a young man in our church for doing something that is just uh, uh, stupendous, incredible, amazing. And I want to call out my man, Joseph Oatsvall. That's right, Joseph Oatsvall, you may know him. The Oatsvalls family, they are the living embodiment of God's diverse kingdom, the Oatsvall family. And Joseph, uh, uh, he is a young African-American man who is uh, uh, hearing impaired, but he joined the football team at Brentwood Middle School. And he joined as the place kicker. And he made, the family made, the front page of the Thursday edition of the Williamson Herald. And it talks about how Joseph worked hard to be on the team, join the team, and just this past week, he kicked an extra point during the game. <laughs> and the stands and the Oldsfall family went ballistic. And he says in this article that he couldn't hear that, the applause, but he could feel the love. He could feel the applause. He did something amazing. And this is just the beginning for this young man. So man, if I had a hat on, hat on I would take it off and say hats off to Joseph Oldsfall for making the paper. The boy in a, in a couple of pages in this thing too, man. So praise God, we give honor to whom honor is due. And by the way, I always say about Joseph, he's the sharpest dressed person in the Oswald family. Every time, you know, Sunday morning, he comes up to me, he's clean. He, he got to let me know where he's rocking. You know what I'm saying? So I'm so proud of brother Joseph. And again, the best is yet to come because next is wrestling season. He's already been on the wrestling team and, and next is wrestling season. So I commend him and all of our students who are able to go back to school, those who are still at home, that you are pressing on. Don't give up. Hang in there. Uh, make lemonade with these lemons from this pandemic time that we're in. Stay safe. Distance yourself. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. And above all, look to him. Now unto him who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. And it's according to the power that's working within us. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen. Go and be a blessing because God has blessed you. Amen. God bless now. Holla. Thank you for joining us today at Strong Tower Bible Church where Dr. Chris Williamson is Senior Pastor. We hope you enjoyed worshiping with us and will join us next Sunday morning right here for our 1030 a.m. service. Be sure to stay informed on upcoming Strong Tower Bible Church events and activities. Download the Strong Tower Bible Church app in the App Store or visit our website at www.strongtowerbiblechurch.com. We 
we pray you have a blessed, wonderful, and safe remainder of the day. And we'll see you next week, same time, right here at the Tower. 